0: Good morning, I want to remind you that uh, after the sermon, uh, there will be folks downstairs to minister to you if you need someone to pray with you, counsel with you, talk with you, Uh, we'll have some folks downstairs by the the library uh, to serve you in that way. Our sermon text this morning is from the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew's in the New Testament. It's the first book of the New Testament. So it's between Malachi and Mark, Luke and John. We're in the ninth chapter, starting at verse 9. And we'll be reading through verse 13. This is what God's Word says. And passing on from there, Jesus saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax collection booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he stood up and followed him. And it came to pass that, as, that he was reclining at table in the house. And behold, many tax collectors and sinners came And we were reclining at table with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees were seeing this, they were saying to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard, he said, Those who are healthy have no need for a doctor, but those who are ill. But go, learn what this is I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I do not come to call righteous people, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, please bless the going forth of your word. That you have promised that your word will not return to you void, but will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. And so I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight and would accomplish your will this morning. Lord, may I speak of you what is right and only what is right. And Lord, we look forward to the work of your spirit. In all of us as your word goes forth. I ask that you grant me accuracy, concision, and clarity and that you would grant all of us the work of your spirit so that your son might be proclaimed to the joy of many and to the glory of you alone. For it is in your son's name and on his merit that we ask all of these things. Amen. So in this morning's passage, Jesus encounters a tax collector. The Roman Empire handled taxes, as many empires do, through an extensive bureaucracy. It delegated tax collection to various levels of bureaucrat, enabling each one to charge extra for their own enrichment. No one ever likes tax collectors, of course. But in this context, they were viewed as collaborators with the foreign conquerors. As viciously corrupt people. For the Jews, it was bad enough that Rome was a ferocious military and political machine of conquest, depriving them of self determination, but even worse, it was a nation full of pagan idolatry and abominable practices. For a people so defined by their covenant with the one true God, tax collectors represented the lowest of the low. To Jewish piety and nationalism alike, the tax collector was utterly other, contemptible and despised. And so we see the Pharisees criticizing Jesus to his disciples for hanging out with such people. Now, Not much has really changed, of course. It's easier for people to engage Jesus' followers, even today, with criticisms based on what they think Jesus should be, rather than look to Jesus himself for who he reveals himself to actually be. But... Not going to get off on that tangent. But about these Pharisees. Now our modern day churchianity tends to write off the Pharisees as pompous, pretentious hypocrites, sort of the the ludicrous, spray-haired, overbearing 1980s televangelists of the ancient Near East and first century Judaism. This isn't quite fair. The Pharisees at the time were the serious religious folks of the day. They were the pious ones in their society back before pious became a slur. They were educated people, good Jewish boys from the good neighborhoods and the good families, hardworking, decent, respected members of the community, fine, upstanding church folks, before that became a facetious term as well. It makes sense that they would be taken aback by a religious leader taking a tax collector as a follower and even hanging out with him and all his scandalous friends. So let's try to be charitable here. Now, how does Jesus respond to them? Jesus responds to the Pharisees with this phrase, go and learn what this is or what this means, yours might say. He's using a standard teacher's phrase from early Judaism, uh, or first century Judaism uh, and following. This phrase is pointing them to the scriptures to correct something that they're missing. The passage he directly quotes is Hosea 6.6. 6. Now the book of Hosea contains some of the Lord's most scathing rebukes and some of his most staggeringly tender appeals to his covenant people against their repeated, egregious unfaithfulness to him. They'd fallen away at the time uh, from God into religious idolatry, social injustice, and rampant immorality. While continuing to claim favored status as God's chosen people, even going so far as to try to blend these ungodly practices with their very system of life and worship that God himself had given them, both to draw near to him and to display his character to the world. So he calls them out and calls them back throughout Hosea. And in this passage, he procl- after proclaiming sweeping judgment, he says, "...for I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings." By quoting the excerpt, Jesus is pointing them to the whole passage. Now, sacrifice and burnt offerings are parallel terms. It's from the sacrificial system, of course. Uh, those parts in the first two halves of that are parallel. Now, one thing to be aware of is that it's common in Old Testament usage, and it's just a, a general Semitic language way of speaking, uh, when you say, I, I desire this, not that, it's not saying don't do that, do this instead. I mean, after all, the sacrifices were commanded by God. Rather, it's a matter of saying that the this is far more important than the that. You, maybe you think of, you can think of how Jesus criticizes the Pharisees sometimes as saying, "You do this, but you ignore that. You should have done them both." And this one's more foundational. The point here is that the Hebrew word in that passage, chesed, uh, which is often rendered mercy, is fundamentally more important to God than the sacrificial system. So what is mercy? Tell me if you've heard this one. Grace is getting something good that you don't deserve, and mercy is getting something bad that you don't deserve, or that you do deserve. You guys have heard that? At least some people. Okay. Um, that's how we often hear it defined. Now, that is precisely how the Bible uses the term grace. Okay. Unmerited favor, getting good things you don't deserve, or getting them not on the basis that you deserve them. But that's not, the other one is not how the Bible uses the term mercy. Getting something good you don't deserve and not getting something bad that you do deserve, in biblical terms, both fall under grace. They're both examples and outworkings of unmerited favor. However, in the Bible, the word mercy can actually be obligatory, whereas grace never is. In the Bible's usage, about 25% of the usage in the Bible is actually in a secular realm. It's not even a, a, a religious term in those cases. In the Bible, someone often owes mercy to another person on the basis that that person had showed them mercy in the past. So, for example, Rahab hid the spies. They would have been caught, but she hid them and the Bible uses Hesed language of that. And then they, she appeals to them that basically they owe her now when they take the city to show her mercy on the basis of, of what she did for them. And that's exactly what happened. The household of Rahab was saved uh, and went on to join the covenant community. So a better definition, and you guys who know me know I like nice little concise definitions, A better definition for mercy would be that when the Bible uses the term mercy, it means help for the helpless. Doing for others what they cannot do for themselves. So helping widows and orphans in their distress is mercy. Not because the widows and orphans deserve their situation. Indeed, they probably don't. It's because they're powerless. And God's people are called to help them even when you have cases where someone does deserve what's coming to them, like a man condemned to death for a heinous offense that he committed, it's still considered mercy for the king to pardon that person because he can't get out of that sentence on his own. So in the Hosea passage, notice the parallel. We've got a very strong parallel between the sacrificial terms. uh, And given that, we might expect the verse to go something like, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, generosity, perhaps, rather than burnt offerings. But that's not what God says. What he says is, mercy, not sacrifice, er, 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 mercy, not sacrifice, knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. When Hosea was speaking on behalf of God, you see Israel's failure to help the helpless Just like all the rest of their idolatry, their injustices, their immoralities, and just like the Pharisees' attitude toward the tax collectors and the sinners, and toward Jesus himself, are at their root a failure of theology. There, I said that word theology, knowledge of God. Now, hold on. Didn't I just say that the Pharisees were the religious experts of the day? The holy rollers? The people who who took religion very seriously and studied and were educated in it? Weren't the people of Israel uniquely blessed with the very oracles of God? I mean, if any group or any nation were experts in theology, you'd expect them to be the ones, right? Well, yes if knowledge of God were merely knowing about God. But to view it that way betrays a fundamental misconception. Knowing a person is not merely an intellectual matter. It is a relational one. I mean, look, I'm pretty sure that Amazon, Google, and the NSA all know tons more facts about my wife than I do. But they don't know her. I do. Similarly, the Bible's approach to theology is not merely to know facts about God. I mean, the demons know facts about God. Rather, to know God is to know a person. To stand in an intimate relationship with a person, the person who made you, the person in whose image you were made, the one who made the universe, the one who is the source and the essence of all good. All sin is fundamentally an affront to God because all sin is fundamentally relationally broken with Him. As someone has so aptly written, what is sin? It is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed. The beauty of God not treasured. The goodness of God not savored. The faithfulness of God not trusted. The commandments of God not obeyed. The justice of God not respected. The wrath of God not feared. The grace of God not cherished. The presence of God not prized. The person of God not loved, that is sin. Now by rejecting the very notion that a teacher from God would associate with sinners and tax collectors, the Pharisees cut off the very people who manifestly needed to know God. They missed the very purpose of knowing things about God, which is to draw near to God, to be be drawn to Him, to know Him. That's why theirs was a failure of mercy. These sinners and sellouts with whom Jesus was spending time were helpless to stand before God. Their very lifestyles screamed the fact to everyone. And rather than be moved with the compassion of god these pharisees people jesus would elsewhere rebuke as by describing them as crossing land and sea just to make one convert instead they slandered the one who was acting to help the helpless in their greatest need and indeed by doing so these pharisees revealed that while they were as religious as the day is long, offering all the prescribed sacrifices and burnt offerings that God demanded, and knowing oh so much about God were just as needy as all the rest. Maybe I'm being a bad Baptist preacher, but I'm putting my three points at the very end here. You see, ultimately this passage reveals three things about knowing God. Still a good one, I've got three. The first one, to know God is our greatest need. To know God is our greatest need. Whether we're religious or profane, ignorant or informed, well behaved or riotous the failures of even our best days display our tragic and fatal estrangement from God second to know God is beyond our own ability now what do I mean by that this knowledge this comprehensive knowledge of God this this relational reconciliation with God to achieve this ultimately is not within our own grasp we're all too weak to change on our own when Jesus uses that word for the sick it's a word that means weak feeble those are the ones who need a healer it was for this reason that the Son of God came and took on our flesh as the very image of the living God, showing us what we could never figure out on our own, living as our representative the perfect life required of us, paying as our substitute the penalty of God that we owed. It's for this reason that the Holy Spirit works in us, convicting us of sin, showing us our Savior, leading us to faith, regenerating us, and when on our own we are so weak to do these things that the Bible describes us not merely as sick, but even as dead. This knowledge of God is beyond our own ability alone. We require a healer. Third, to know God leads us to want others to know Him as well. As we're reconciled to God, as His Spirit dwells and works within us, as we continue to gaze upon Him in His Word, we're progressively transformed, the Bible says, from glory unto glory. We're conformed to the image of His Son. And so we begin to be renovated more and more into the image of the one whose image we are meant to bear. We learn to think God's thoughts after him, to speak his words to others, proclaiming that very mercy that was shown to us in hope that he will have mercy on them as well. We do these things because God does these things. So again, to know God is every person's deepest, most fundamental need. To attain this is beyond our mere ability. And to know God leads us to want others to know him as well. As the Bible says elsewhere, from now on, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. In other words, not through our own abilities, but through what God reveals to us and works in us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin. It is an offering for sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So knowing that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for revealing to us our need. We thank you that by your grace you have acted to help us when we are helpless. You have turned your great power to the cause of the powerless. And so we ask that you would meet us this morning at our greatest need. Show us our sin. But show us all the more our Savior. I ask that you would awaken each one of us knowledge and trust and delight in you. For the first time, we're rekindling us for the thousandth time. we ask that you would move in the hearts of each one here. That your word would bear fruit. That your spirit would work. Show us the helpless ones that we treat as other that we may treat them instead as Jesus did. That you might work and might be seen to work for the joy of many and for the glory of one. For it is in Jesus' name that we ask all of these things. Amen.